Curioso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 210, Being Poor After the Monasteries. Before we begin this episode, I wanted to say that I'm indebted to the work of author Peter Higginbotham, whose book, Workhouses in Wales and the Welsh Borders, was a major source for this episode and definitely helped out a lot when trying to understand how the poor were treated, the legislation behind it, and some of the important details. A long time ago, I discussed social safety nets and how they worked during the Middle Ages. Frequently, churches acted in a role caring for the sick and the poor. They were the frontline staff, to continue a rather modern term, fighting against the long-term problems in society of those who were perceived to have no role in it. As time moved on and the Catholic Church was removed from its position, so too when the monastic order, whose very important role in protecting and monitoring these poor and ill was now replaced. After the dissolution of the monasteries, there was not really a functional system, and that instead fell to the government to create solutions. In 1552, for example, the Act of Provision and Relief of the Poor was created, and with it there was now required a collection of alms, or charitable donations, to be collected in each of the parishes with every parishioner giving whatever their charitable donation suggested that they should. This voluntary donation would eventually change, but for the moment, that's kind of where it was at. Eventually, the justices of the peace dedicated people to collect these donations, or eventually taxes, as these voluntary donations did not adequately reflect the needs that were to be met. Compulsory contributions were then instituted by the Vagabond Act of 1572, which introduced a local property tax called the poor rate, administered by the parish collectors, and a new title which would become much more important called overseer. The money raised was to be used to relieve the aged, poor, impotent, and decayed persons. The act of settling the poor on work from 1576 described a policy which was to be a way of dealing with the destitute, which included something that would become a norm for the centuries after. The able-bodied poor were not to have any just excuse in saying that they cannot get service or work and be without the means of livelihood. In other words, there was no excuse for being poor and you just need to work harder. These kind of comments or the idea that you are just lazy, kind of sound familiar if we think about it. To achieve this, every town was required to provide, quote, a stock of wool, hemp, flax, or other stuff by taxation of all, so that every poor and needy person, old or young, able to work and standing in need of relief, shall not fear for want of work, go abroad begging or committing pilfering or living in idleness, end quote. Obviously, the issue of helping the poor was an ongoing problem for the Elizabethan government, who were attempting to meet the needs of these poor people while creating self-reliance as they saw it. Among their earliest pieces of legislation was the 1597 Poor Relief Act, which created, as named previously, the role of overseers of the poor. These men were elected to their positions 
as unpaid legal administrators of food, clothing, and at times money that would then be issued to various types of poor. This was refined further in the 1601 Act, which the government under Queen Elizabeth established called the Poor Relief Act, or the Old Poor Act as it would become known during the 1800s. The goal of the act was to codify who was poor through classification and to set about collecting taxes to help deal with these poor. These roles, of course, fell to the overseers who were then represented at every local parish in Wales and England at the behest of the Justice of the Peace. However, due to there only being vague notions over what the role was to do and who was to be elected to it and what their responsibilities were to both the parish and the justice of the peace, standardization was largely left to the parishes, and they would largely interpret that law how they saw fit. Thus, not all overseers were created equal. What the law set out was that it was understood that there were two types of relief, outdoor and indoor. Outdoor relief meant that the poor would be left in their own homes and would be given either a dole, in quotes, of money, on which they would live or be given relief in kind, such as clothes and food, for example. This was the normal way in which the poor were treated during this period. This would be similar in the way those who needed funding from the government meet their needs today, which are largely issued via money donation. Indoor relief was considered more of an exception, at least at the beginning, and in those cases the poor would be taken into local almshouses, the ill would be admitted to hospital, and orphans were then taken to orphanages. As to the so-called idle poor, those who were fit and able to work but for reasons were unable to find work, they were then taken into the poorhouse or workhouse where they would be set to work. That, of course, was an improvement over what was done previously, where in 1563, for example, it was said that the idle poor were to be whipped through the streets publicly until they learned the error of their ways. These early workhouses slash poorhouses, and unfortunately, these will be interchangeable terms, and their clarification is a little difficult to get around. But just so you understand, there is two terms. They are slightly interchangeable, although at this point, they apply very differently than what we will see later. They were, nonetheless, either often non-residential establishments like workshops, or they were public buildings that were being used for these programs. Work, usually related to the production of textiles, was often provided for those where consideration of the idle poor was important as mentioned earlier. They would often be given work to do either at these work halls or in some cases to take home and do the work and then bring it back. And when they did that, they would then receive food, clothing, and or money to help cover costs, pay for rent, to help feed themselves, and be perceived as being productive members of society. As an example, at Shrewsbury, as early as 1604, the town corporation made plans to set the poor to work in Old Castle, but the scheme appears to not have come to fruition. However, in 1627, it was ordered that the Jersey, in quotes, Jersey House be made into a workhouse, end quote, with Jersey cloth being manufactured there. 
This was a fairly common idea across a number of English cities and towns, and of course would become more common in Wales as more and more people entered into urban environments. During the return of the Stuart monarchy, new laws were put in place, which had special importance for the poor. The specific law in question was the 1662 Settlement and Removal Act. This act would declare that a parish was required to give poor relief only to those who were legally established or settled there, unless they were able to rent a property for £10 a year or more any new arrival was deemed likely to be chargeable to the poor rate. In other words, they were basically too poor to be expected to get a job, thus unable to fund the rent that they needed. Thus, they would end up becoming wards of the state, which effectively is not what they wanted to do. So instead, they would then be forcibly sent back to their own parish. And basically, if you were too poor and deemed a burden on the state, you were then Regardless of whether you were, and regardless of the circumstances that brought you there, you were then not allowed to move there, even if it was just to better your circumstances. Now, of course, in saying all that, we don't know how effective any of these laws were. We don't know whether they were proactively used. As we said previously, quite frequently, parishes would kind of go their own way and do their own things. So there's not necessarily a one-to-one -one comparison to say what happened in London happened in, say, Chester, Bristol, or Hereford, for example. A lot of it was purely dependent upon how you perceived and how you dealt with things and probably the level of mercy that was obtained by that person. And who knows, you know, in different cases, other parishes may have gone out of their way to help get certain poor people out of their area by basically giving them incentives. These are the kind of things that you don't really know, but you would have to have solid examples of. But certainly you would have to wonder if it didn't go on because of, sometimes we've seen that in modern circumstances with the way poor are dealt with by some states, provinces, and nations. So with all of that in mind... The way you obtained settlement was determined on where you were born, and more specifically, who your father or husband was and whether they were considered settled in the area. However, for illegitimate children, they were granted settlement in the place where they were born because obviously there isn't always evidence as to who the father was, and thus, rather than maybe call out someone who might be in positions of power or any other reason that could be the case, they would then effectively name them as settled in the area they were born. And that, of course, meant that these children were now the responsibility of the parish, and it was up to that parish to deal with the consequences of that. Because of all these issues, this sometimes led to parish overseers to try and get rid of unmarried pregnant women before their child was born, for example, by forcibly transporting her to another parish just before the birth, or by paying a man from another parish to marry her, because, of course, this would then make them the responsibility to that parish who would, their overseer would then have to collect the taxes, which be, would be used for the child. And I'm sure all of this kind of thing, especially the collection of money for the poor, did not make them terribly popular. These settlement laws would be amended continually after that occasion, but would remain in place and in some form or fashion until 1948 in the UK. 
If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Returning to the 1601 laws, there was, as I said, not complete agreement by communities to have the system work for them. And they had different ideas about how the system should work and eventually led to problems, such as in Bristol, where there existed 18 small parishes, with each one being responsible for local poor it would make it difficult for them to be able to meet all those needs because of these small parishes. The uneven distribution of the poor in the community, when you look at where the parishes were positioned versus, say, where taxes may have been collected, those wouldn't necessarily match up. And so you'd have this kind of system of one parish would be a lot wealthier and able to deal with their poor a lot easier and would have a lot less number than another parish who might be in the same situation. So because of that, efforts were made to try and unite the various parishes in dealing with collectively the poor, rather than trying to go it alone. So in 1696, the Bristol parishes obtained what was called the Local Act of Parliament to create the Bristol Incorporation of the Poor. The act enabled the corporation to manage poor relief across the whole city, including appointing paid officers and setting up workhouses to try and deal with some of the issues. In effect, they set up a municipal welfare administration that would pool resources amongst the various parishes, and as I mentioned earlier, make it easier to distribute 
to the poor from the wealthy, which would be important in a place like Bristol where there was a lot of money flowing in due to it being a very important port in this period. Of course, that doesn't mean it was great for everyone, so that's the reason why they would have these incorporations to try and help them. By 1712, more than a dozen of these towns had followed Bristol's example and formed their own civic incorporations under the local acts. This concept was also developed by the border communities of Hereford, Gloucester, and Chester from 1698 to 1761. All of these communities were seeing migration from around the local area, some of which, of course, have Welsh people moving into the towns to try and gain better financial positions for themselves, and thus would see an increase to the numbers of both wealthy and poor, as both would obviously grow in these circumstances as the city grew. In this, that created a need to try and deal with this problem, and obviously it would only grow as time went on and as these cities grew. The workhouse set up by the local incorporations were usually styled as houses of industry in expectation, however often unrealized, that the labor of their inmates would make a substantial contribution to the running of the cost of the establishment. Obtaining a local act was not an inexpensive process, but there was a sense that it would pay for itself over time. The idea that they could use the poor to fund the poor dole was one of the reasons that drove them to continue to work for these poor houses or workhouses. But of course, like everything, not everyone was successful and not every opportunity worked out. For example, within five years of Gloucester obtaining its local act, the city parishes had reverted to the administration of poor relief individually. However, they did return to the idea in 1764 as they developed a second local act, which did continue to go forward from there on. Over the 18th century, the idea of a workhouse, as described previously, started to slowly develop into the concept of a poorhouse, a place where not only the poor would work, but would also receive accommodation. A major impetus to use these parish workhouses as such came from the 1723 Workhouse Test Act, also known as the Natch Bulls Act. The act gave a legal framework for workhouses to be set up with parishes individually or in combination with another parish. This would then have the effect in the minds of the advocates of getting these poor to work while also getting them off the streets. Also, it worked in their minds as a cost-saving measure by only offering the workhouse rather than donations, which meant that they would have some who would obviously not accept that offering and therefore would not be on the rolls and not be receiving any money for support. The poor work would then be hired out to various contracts to create the idea of keeping the idle poor busy as valuable contributors to their own funding. While this was considered to be, in quotes, farming them out to whomever would be willing to pay for them, it would also offer these contractors a separate stipend to go along with all the other money that was flowing in from various charitable donations to help, be it through taxes or through actual proper charities, to help fund these workhouses. However, if workhouses were unable to meet the needs of the poor, or at least not make money off of them, 
or had too many on their rolls, they would then be closed and the parish would return to the old system. Workhouses were sometimes operated in existing premises that might be owned by the parish or in some cases rented because of their locations and because of their style and build. They would move around and change over time, but they would become standardized as more and more parishes bought these properties. And because of this, you will see more and more evidence of them even today in some of the towns and cities across Wales. Eventually, if parishes felt well-established with their workhouse, they could then buy a purpose-built location, as I mentioned, that would serve that role for years to come. Sometimes these parishes would run the workhouses themselves, and as I mentioned, sometimes they would be contracted out, and that would then dictate who was in charge of the location and their responsibility to the parish in meeting the needs of these workhouses. Now, so far what we've talked about is how the poor were dealt with prior to the 1800s, which is where we are currently. Everything that happens post, I would say, 1820 now reflects on the changes that are made to meet the demands of a growing class of people who are disenfranchised in society, who have no representation because, of course, they can't vote and have no ability to make their voice heard in a way that actually gets attention. They're not rich. They're not considered to be landholders or leaseholders. So thus they have no property. They are just simply considered a burden on society and be it whether they're poor, whether they're disabled, whether they're very elderly and infirm or on the opposite side, whether they're orphans who are unable to fend for themselves, all of these are perceived as being drains on local income and local society. And so thus, many of the decisions are taken out of their hands and many of them are forced into these circumstances. Like I said earlier, it's key to note that for some people, even the idea of it is so repugnant that they would rather starve and or rather struggle than go into a workhouse. And you'll hear some of this in the writings, especially of the fictional authors in the 1800s. One doesn't have to think very hard about this. And I probably mentioned this in the past, but if you think of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, when Scrooge says, is there no poor houses? Is there no prisons to deal with the poor? And the ghost's response is, many would rather die than go there. The response of the so-called rich landholder was to say, well, maybe they should do that and decrease the surplus population. So the idea and concept that the poor were a burden on society that were better dead than actually, in quotes, leeching off of the richer parts of society is not new. And it's something that's existed for a very, very long time in the thought processes of many people. The one thing that the monasteries did was they kind of protected against that because they were out of sight, out of mind. Much like how, and we'll talk about these as time goes on, and certainly the poor houses had a lot to do with this, in dealing with those that had mental issues and how they were put into mental institutions to keep them out of sight and out of mind and out of society because they may have been 
in the perspective of the government, a danger to themselves and especially others. All of these things become something that will lead to a backlash and a reaction that we are coming to in Wales. This is the reason why we're putting down so much groundwork into this is because opposition to the way the poor, either the working poor or the actual destitute are dealt with by the government and by society is starting to come to a head, especially in places like Wales, where there is this larger proportion of the population that's living hand to mouth, that's having to deal with the consequences of the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution and the slow accumulation of wealth in very few people. All of this is creating a class system which has gone beyond the ideas of responsibility to your renters to becoming a situation where there is a wealthy and a poor class and those two not intermixing except for in the streets. And all of that is going to continue to create problems. This happens everywhere across Europe, but certainly happens in Wales quite dramatically over the next few decades. And we'll be getting into one of the bigger instances very soon called the Rebecca Riots, something that starts a process which heads us towards what would be considered the modern system of how we deal with labor, with laws, with the dynamics of how to share the wealth that is being accumulated amongst the Welsh population, both the poor and the rich, and how governments and especially political parties will change their tune and message on this, and how their responsibility to various levels of the population will change over time. But that's an ongoing effort and an ongoing thing and something we'll talk much further about in the coming few weeks. I have a few personal examples that I have researched over the years about these workhouses and how they're in the government. The translation of what I felt like seemed to be an effort to separate the those that were destitute from their children on the auspices of the children were being taught the wrong things and thus the government needs to take them away seemed to be something that was both scary and very present in my own family history. So these are things we're going to discuss and maybe go a little farther with. But with all that said and done, thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to me on Twitter, formerly known as Twitter, at the Welsh History Pod, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast, or if you'd like to help to contribute to the role of raising funds to help the research of this podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History Thank you, everyone who does donate there. You are amazing and appreciated, and I don't take lightly the funding from there. And it has definitely helped me find articles like this book from Peter Higginbotham, which are so necessary to give context and to get a better understanding of what's going on in this time period. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen 
Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.